Hi, and welcome to Make Data Human. I'm Anjali Beatty, the CEO of the PsychAI Group, and I'm joined by my favorite data enthusiasts, Micah and DBS. Now, the three of us love demystifying complex data jargon and complex data concepts. So for this episode, we thought we'd do something a little different. A number of listeners sent us questions about data, technology, and on this episode, we're going to answer those questions. Question number one comes from nine-year-old Aria, based in London, who asked us, how can an Apple Watch be so small but know so much? Thoughts? So I'm holding an Apple Watch here right now, and I've turned it over uh, to look at the back. And what I can see is a number of sensors. Each of these sensors basically collects data. Right? And there's different types of sensors. Some of them are red, some of them are green. There's motion sensors underneath that I can't quite see. But essentially, every one of these sensors is collecting information as I move, either from the direction at which my hand moves, the heat, lots of different inputs. And all of that data is then pulled into some code. Uh, every piece of technology that we have is basically ran by code. And code is written and designed to do lots of different things. And every app on your Apple Watch will have been designed specifically to do a certain thing, to take in a certain piece of that data in a certain way for a a certain uh, purpose. So like monitoring your heart, for example. And every single one has been focused on by a a dedicated team of developers to do a specific thing. Uh, So there's a lot of work that goes into it and they're all bespoke and they're all different and they use data in different ways. But what is also important to understand about an Apple Watch is that it's connected. So it's not just the brain of the Apple Watch and the, and the little chips that are inside the Apple Watch, but it's also the chips that are inside your phone because it connects and it's this idea of the Internet of Things, connected devices that are using the Internet, essentially, or a Bluetooth or any connectivity method to share data and to solve problems together. It's a bit like if you have a smart meter on your wall, it's the same concept. So it's able to use a a bigger computer, which sits inside your phone. There's more memory and there's more power, essentially, for your phone to make predictions. So not everything's actually happening in the watch. So, for example, your Google Maps, the the location is detected through your arm, but the predictions of where your route should go are made from your phone, and that algorithm sits in your phone. And to take it one step further, the algorithms that, predict the route themselves there's a version in your phone but there's also a version in a big server somewhere uh, in a in a in a warehouse with uh, you know huge computers that process and optimize routes and then push a version of that small back to your phone so it's this idea of kind of connected devices and that's just three steps right the whole world is becoming connected, which allows us to, to make better connections across devices and make you know the apps and, and what we use on that Apple Watch, a bit like weather, for example, another good example of um, how we pull in data and connect data across. And so it, it's almost like a, a, a spider web. And it is a spider web because it's not just a, a, a tangled mess, but it is a designed web of connections that create this you know, beautiful thing that is technology. And each of these connection points in that web give us some value, like you know, our ability to change the music or track our run. So if I were going to simplify your answer and try and distill it to its essence, 
Through the watch that Aria wears, there's multiple ways of collecting data through that watch in itself. And there's a lot of little small chips in the watch that then process that data, can store that data, but then also share that data and push that data to phones and to other devices to create that overarching spider web, which is why the phone knows so much, but can still be so small. Would that be correct? Exactly. Yeah. And, and I'm not a hardware specialist, but what I would say is that over time, you know, those that develop the actual hardware, so those chips, they're getting better and better. You know, look at, look at phones when they were first brought out, they were bricks. Now they're, they're tiny. And essentially the power that you've got on your watch is the same power you would have had in your iPhone a few years ago. So they're, they're, they're reducing the hardware to make it more accessible, like th- these other small devices, like a tiny little um, headphone piece, which is even smaller than the watch. So making the hardware work harder and, and, and smaller enables it, you know, the technology to be put in, in lots of different places and same same for sensors and, and where we place sensors. They're just getting smaller and smaller, which which increases the, the places we can collect data and it in, increases the places we can we can push algorithms. Um, to answer your question, Aria, you might actually be a little bit like an Apple Watch. You can be you can be very very small and very knowledgeable, um, and are very good at what you do. But you'll always need somebody around you to help you with some bigger questions. So your mom might be your iPhone, or your dad might be the internet, or even your friends. And that also means that the lesson you can learn uh, from an Apple Watch is that as an individual, you might be really really good. But as a team, you're a lot stronger. So on the lines of devices working and how devices work, our second question is from Sam, who is based in the Isle of Wight and is a self-described technophobe. And Sam asks the question, how does Alexa work? So Alexa works by listening to your voice and taking your voice as input. We convert the voice and the, and the, and the vocal waves into data and that data then gets processed by the, the the algorithms that sit inside your little Alexa box. What Alexa has been trained to do is to interpret this voice, this sound, convert it into text and then use that text almost as a question answering a mechanism. So it's been trained on lots of combinations of answers potential answers and it provides you with the answer that it believes is the most appropriate so it's like a matching algorithm now people say things in different ways there's nuanced ways of pronouncing there's nuanced ways of asking alexa is trained kind of centrally on lots of different people's questions um, and lots of different ways of asking things but if on day one you were to say something that is quite nuanced based on your accent or uh, your dialect, it may get it wrong, right? Because it's kind of a general training. But what it does is it takes your voice and over time it improves. So it starts to learn the nuances of what you're saying and how you say it. A bit like we talked about with the Apple Watch, there's this idea of like a local version and a centralised version. And the centralised version is trained off everyone. It's like a generalised If we were to not have any information about you, about how you talk, what would we predict is the answer you're looking for? But a local version, it actually takes in your data 
and it tries to optimize the way that it responds to your voice. So DBS, in, in one of the first episodes, we talked about the difference then uh, between machine learning and artificial intelligence. And when you now say that Alexa is able to recognize your voice, recognize tone or accent, is it then machine learning or is it then in fact artificial intelligence because it learns and it improves itself? The way I see machine learning is the individual algorithms. Uh, AI is kind of the general application. So in this case, what Alexa is trying to do is it's trying to trying to act as a person would, right? It's trying to answer questions and it's trying to listen. So, yeah, I would very much say that Alexa is a, a form of AI. But like you say, there's many different stages to make that possible. It has to take the sound and convert that sound into numbers, into text. There are ways of also taking the tone of how someone says things. Um, I don't think Alexa's actually trying to detect if you are angry, but there are devices out there that, that can do that and do do that. And again, that's another algorithm or another machine learning algorithm that takes that data and processes it in a certain way. But the AI for me is the application, right? It's how all of these things are brought together. Sometimes it is a single machine learning algorithm. Um, others, it's many, many uh, combined together. DBS, to your point, there's a lot of implications of AI, of data collection that are discussed in the media, but still make people very, very nervous. And we have a question from Taiman, who's a 19-year-old law student in the Netherlands, where he asked, Elon Musk is saying AI is dangerous, but is that actually true? And what are the opportunities for AI? Whew, that's a big question. Um, and it's a big debate at the moment i think there's two types of danger one type of danger is things that we can currently do today and how they're being used and the bigger type of danger which i think elon musk is referring to is the future and what ai could do in the future and i'll start with the first because it is here and it is now and i think ai is dangerous today because of how it's applied. So AI is not thinking for itself today. It's not sentient. It's not able to go away and do, you know, things on its own accord and, and change, fundamentally change the way that it's directed. Because AI today is not conscious. It's not sentient. It's not making its own decisions and deciding where it should go and, and where it should, you know, infiltrate. I think infiltrate's a good word uh, here. Um, but it is so good now that it's deceptive, right? It's so good that it can replicate what we do as humans in some cases, right? Uh, Alexa maybe is not uh, great right now. You know, the conversational thing is hard and you can still detect that it's, you know, AI. But there are in, in recent um, years developments, especially uh, text, for example, like AI can create an article, right? And you could read an article on a, on a website and you would think, oh, that's pretty well written. I mean, they, they reference themselves and, you know, they make good analogies. It's written by a person, but actually it's not. It could be written by an AI because the AI has learned from a big section of the internet how we talk and how we write and it's able to replicate uh, with new kind of prompts. So we could say, 
you know, please tell us more about the events in, in, in Ukraine, let's say. And it would produce output in a way that a human wouldn't be able to detect that it was an algorithm that, that's produced it. And that's where I think it becomes dangerous uh, and, and scary uh, because it can deceive. And we talked about it on the previous episode, you know, with deep fakes and videos that have been created by algorithms that look like real people uh, and, and to the human eye, you wouldn't be able to det- detect it. Like that's, that's where it's dangerous right now. But ultimately, it's down to the person that implements that AI. So it's up to me to put an article on a website that has been produced by AI, or it's up to me to post a video on a social media that is created by AI. It's not like the AI is deciding, oh, I'm going to go and create a strategy um, for misinformation, and I'm going to you know, do X, Y, and Z all after each other in a row and change the actions that I do. Like, it's not intelligent enough at the moment to think for itself. Uh, it's only intelligent enough to think for certain, you know, isolated applications, and it's always in control of where a human wants to deploy it. So, to right now, that's the scenario. In the future, um, I think what Elon Musk is referring to is the fact that AI will become more in control of its own actions. It will become more conscious, and potentially, it will then go out of control we're we're probably talking in our lifetime not in the next few years but in our lifetime that that will probably happen and the advancements in the last few years have have really kind of accelerated that we don't know exactly when it's going to happen but it's important now that we are aware that it's coming and that we start to prepare for it that's very dystopian yeah, it's a bit of doom and gloom, is it? That's a... <laughs> Micah, do you see it that way as well? Is it all doom and gloom? But there's opportunity for sure. That's that's also why we're doing this podcast to make people aware of the opportunities that exist. But I have to agree with with TBS here. There is massive risk if we see it now with deepfake videos and the computing power that will only go bigger and bigger and bigger. What if? It becomes smarter than we are. What if can if it can discover things that we would never be able to discover? Our minds are limited in a certain way. We're biological beings. It brings you to all these movies made in the 90s and uh, early on in the millennium, which is like, uh, you know, is, is Arnold Schwarzenegger coming back? Is he really coming back? Is he really coming? Uh, I think he might be, yeah. Um, but it's, it's a monitoring thing. And it's also what we discussed in one of the earlier episodes about governance uh, not necessarily control, but governments, uh, governance and uh, transparency, transparency on how things are made, why they're made in a certain way. And the more that stays uh, in darkness or in back corners or in, in rooms that nobody has access to, uh, the more that risk increases for uh, well, average uh, citizens, average global citizens. Yeah, so the governments, the transparency, but also the education on what it is, what you can do with it, and also how you can stop it. Because DBS, can you unplug your computer and not be affected by it? Or would that also be a hope? Because many people would say, well, then I'll just unplug from the internet and I won't be affected by it. But apparently it doesn't work that way, does it? You know, I, I think we've built a dependency on it. And so we've made it very difficult to unplug. I felt after I answered that question, Angelie, that it was very doom and gloom. To Micah's point, I, it's not all doom and gloom. It's just something we need to be careful of. 
and we need to be careful of the controls we put in place. Obviously, like the advancements in AI are huge, and the, the, the positive impact. Um, and we should do an episode, uh, you know, that covers all those examples, like protein folding, for example. Um, you know, how we can uh, using AI uh, start to really understand proteins at a pace that we never did historically. And the impact that that will have on on things like medicine are huge, and the rate at which we're going to you know cure diseases is going to, for example, is going to exponentially increase. Right. So, as humans, we're benefiting a lot, and our intelligence as beings. We could have a debate about how much time we you know purge into social media and mindless scrolling, but ultimately, technology is enabling us to be more intelligent. And it's giving us access to information quicker. As a race, we are becoming more tuned in and, and more intelligent. And it's obvious, you know, the, the positive impact. But I think just what I wanted to outline is the potential uh, lack of control, which will come uh, later in the future. And just being aware of it now is really important. And also back to the, you know, we talked about bias before. You know, we are training these algorithms. They are learning from us, from what we feed in. And they're, going to, they're building on each other, right? The way that they work nowadays is you train a massive, and we're moving away from individual kind of, here's an algorithm to solve this problem, here's an algorithm to solve this problem. We're actually moving into huge, huge you know, algorithms that solve many things in one place. And then we're building on them, right? We take them and we retrain them, we train them on more data and they get more intelligent. We need to start now training them on the right things and in the right ways because it's it's like building blocks and we're building on them because it's quicker to build on them than it is to build from scratch. So you know, it's important just to be aware of these things right now before it it's too late. Yeah, And there's a great book. I think I've referenced it in another podcast. It's called Human Compatible. And actually a lot of Elon's references are to that book, which we can share in the links, I'm sure. That's a beautiful answer. At least there is some hope, as long as we're actually aware of our own thinking, our own biases now. And I think that's the critical point. There is always hope. One thing that's funny to think about as well is just throughout human history, how dependent and reliant we've been on different measurement systems, different ways of trying to predict the future to guide our decision making. And in the modern context, I think we could all agree that that's data science and it's artificial intelligence. Whereas historically, it might have been things like astrology, where you're looking at patterns of the moon, the stars, eclipses, whether Pluto is in retrograde, something along those lines, to try and understand what and to predict what will occur. So that leads us to our fourth question, which is from 64-year-old Shankar, who's based in California, who asked us, how are data science and astrology similar or different? I think they're very similar because they both do the same thing. They take a set of variables. You look at the variables and you drive to a conclusion in order to make a decision. I'm currently pregnant. I can look at the stars and say the stars are aligned and I'm going to have a boy or a girl. Or I could actually have an ultrasound and have data gathered and look at the data and say it's actually going to be a boy or a girl. It's similar. It's very, very similar. And in that perspective, you could say data science is an evolution of astrology because it uses exactly the same principles. I don't know. How do you feel about this, DBS? 
No, I completely agree. It's it's essentially the same thing, right? It's it's trying to make predictions based on um, inputs. Um, I don't know, Anjali. Maybe you can fill us in a little bit because I know your your knowledge of of the field is much greater than mine. But I don't know how the original kind of components of astrology were put together. But if I think about how an algorithm is trained, we decide what we want to make predictions based on. So what are the inputs? What are the predictors? And we decide what we want the outcome to be. Together, we use those two things to optimize those predictions. Um, and I do wonder, you know, back to the origins of, of the field, how they brought together those variables. Obviously, they weren't using a computer program and, and lots of math to, to optimize the combination of predictors. But they are combining predictors together to make uh, a prediction. But, Anjali, I don't know if you have any more knowledge about how they were originally made, those, those predictions. I don't know how they were originally made, but I know that there are some very specific rules-based approaches for how you make certain predictions or how you determine certain things. I have an aunt, actually, who's an astrologist in India, and my first interaction with astrology, I think I must have been 18 or something like that, and she sat me down, she took my, my date of birth, the time I was born, the specific location in California where I was born, there were a few other factors, and she basically then spat out a bunch of information, which oddly has been quite true over the last 15, 20 years, but I think within the the field, and I don't know that much about this, so apologies if I uh, am speaking out of line. There are a few sort of critical things people look at. There's locations, there's certain your star sign, your moon, your rising moon, something along those lines. And on that basis of those specific variables that one can extract from one's date of birth, where they were born, et cetera, you're able to make predictions about what will happen to them in the future. The accuracy of that, I think, could be very different. I think also the belief in the accuracy of that could be very different, which perhaps in a way is similar to data science and outputs of data models, that the information that's that's provided and whether one chooses to believe it and act upon it is just as important as what is actually fed into it. It's still numerically driven, so maybe a little bit more mathematical than you might first think. Today, when we train algorithms, it's very fact-based, right? We, we train against a number, essentially, and we optimize against that number. Like, how many of the correct uh, answers did we get for Alexa? Like, how many times did she answer you incorrectly and you had to ask again? It's very numerically driven. Whereas this, to me, is a bit more human. You know, you're talking about beliefs. And, Anjali, when you were talking that, it made me think, like, if you believe in the predictions that are made, then they will influence the behavior that you make as a person. And that maybe is a lesson to be learned. You know, computers maybe have a lesson to learn from how we, we talk about those predictions and the impact that they ultimately do have on, on people rather than it being a cold prediction that optimizes for monetary purposes or, or whatever. Fascinating. Maybe we should get your aunt on, Angelie, and have a bit of a, a debate. Oh, that's a good idea. That's a very good idea. I'll see if she's up for it. 
continuing along with this existential and philosophical thread, we have a very interesting question from nine-year-old Noah and seven-year-old Emael, who are sisters who live in Switzerland. And they asked us, is God the first programmer? It's a wonderful question. If I'd ha- have to answer it directly, I would say uh, yes. <laughs> because uh, if it's the same God we are both referring to, it would be somebody that created something based on a certain set of parameters with a very specific output in mind. And that's what programmers do, don't they? They create something based on what is it you want to achieve, what should it look like, and how should we build it? So, yeah, if we go back way into time, I would have to agree with those two very smart girls that God is indeed the first programmer. <laughs> what about you, DBS? Do you agree with them? <laughs> well, I'm pretty sure he didn't have a stack overflow. <laughs> <laughs> a bit of a joke for those that do code um i think well, it's, very, it's a very philosophical question it, to me it makes me think in a way like are we in the future potentially going to get close to the power that if this is true and god was the first programmer that god had you know he had all of those decisions to make how do I program the creation of the earth and and humans and 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 the world right he had a, a world of opportunity, forgive the pun there. And we are getting to a point where we can now design worlds and we can create huge experiments and not just in the virtual world, but in the real world as well. Could we get to a stage where, you know, the, the AI that we have could become as as big as, you know, his experiment? the experiment of the, the, the creation of the world. What it does make me think is around control. You know, maybe he designed the world and he lost control a bit. You know, the world is a, is a, is a, is a horrible place in, in some cases. It's a wonderful place in others, but it's also a horrible place. And maybe he designed humans, but but he lost control over the experiment and we went off and did things that he would never have anticipated and maybe that draws some parallels to to where we are with AI right now you know and what I mentioned earlier about control and and if we get to a point where algorithms can make their own decisions maybe we lose control and maybe we end up you know in a similar place to to where we are now with the world in that you know good and and evil and and uh, and I think maybe God lost control I don't know it's a really, really good question to think about. You know, we're all programmers. Uh, our, our mind is a program and it's, yeah, it's an interesting question. Well, kudos to him because he did it all by himself <laughs> with huge amounts of data. So he was one of the best, not only the first yeah. or she. We don't know that either, do we? <laughs> Let's assume she. <laughs> But it's a bit like um, we, we talk about with algorithms, you know, that they have the opportunity, AI has the opportunity to learn from our mistakes as humans. Yeah. I think we can learn from, you know, his mistake and we can make sure we yeah. do set governance and we do, you know, think about control before we lose it. Agreed. As the wise Spider-Man says, with great power comes great responsibility. And certainly anybody who's programming has that. What a fascinating conversation. 
We need to take questions from the audience way more often. Please keep sending them our way at www.thepsych-aigroup.com. And there's more from us there and where all good podcasts live.